Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tea and Murder, an Agatha Christie podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. We're part book club, part interview show, and all Agatha Christie. I just want to thank our guest, Dr. Mark Aldridge, for rescheduling this episode. As our listeners know, there was a little health issue for me, and we are now so happy to be back. Uh, Thank you to all of you for being patient, and especially thanks to you, Dr. Aldridge. Um, This is our last episode of the season. Thank you so much for tuning in for season two. We have a really, really great season three coming up, so get ready for that. And um, now let's get into the interview. I am so excited to have here with me Dr. Mark Aldridge. He is an Agatha Christie historian and speaker. His books include Agatha Christie's Marple, Expert on Wickedness, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, and Agatha Christie on Screen. Mark recently launched the podcast The Swinging Christie's Agatha Christie in the 1960s with writer Gray Robert Brown. And it is so much fun. If you haven't listened yet, I'm sure you all have. Definitely tune into that. Welcome, Mark. Hi, thank you for having me on. Very excited, especially about the book that we're talking about today. Me too. I'm so excited to talk about that. Before that, we're going to talk about you, baby. Um, So tell me a little bit about your relationship to Agatha Christie's work and uh, when you started reading her books. I, uh, yeah, I've, I've read her books for a very long time, like most people, um, <laughs> yeah. one of those, you know, if you're an Agatha Christie fan, you tend to be a fan from when you're, uh, you know, a child. In the womb, I, yeah. I, yeah, in the womb, <laughs> and my mum, still an Agatha Christie fan, yeah. um, and so Agatha Christie was just around all of the time, but I was a huge reader, I, it, it's so embarrassing to think about how much I read as a child compared <laughs> to how much I read now, uh, because you just couldn't stop me from reading, like. You know how you take video games off children to punish them now. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, for me, that that equivalent punishment would be you can't keep reading books. <laughs> you know, that's how much that I was reading books. Right. So Agatha Christie was one of the first adult authors, you know, or people who, authors who wrote for adults that, that I really mm-hmm. engage with. But yeah. we loved sort of the adaptations and everything at home as well. So mm. for me, it's all one big thing. And I can't really remember the order in which I read them all. But yeah. Um, Definitely, Agatha Christie was always around and was a big part of my reading and watching um, mm. as a child. Do you remember a particular Christie that struck you when you were younger? Yeah, I I remember reading some of the big titles and not mm. knowing that they were big titles. Right, of I course. I think it was a, li- a little less obvious then. So I remember reading Murder on the Orient Express. And they must have been about 12. I've got a really strong memory, actually, that we went to see my godparents. <laughs> I didn't really know terribly well. And I was uh-huh. a sort of... Thinking all the way through the meet, oh, you know, the, the, the meetup, thinking, I wonder when we'll be done so that I can finish Murder on the Orient <laughs> Express. And I remember when I was reading it, my mum kept saying, so who do you think it is? And I was telling her, you know, whoever I thought it was. And she was sort of with a little glint in her eye going, oh, OK, OK. <gasps> Obviously thinking he's really not got it. He's really yeah. not got it. And I really didn't get it. 
Um, so it was, it was quite a treat, really, to to mix up, though. I think I read a lot of the lesser-known ones early. I, uh, mm. Why Didn't They Ask Evans was one of the first ones I read, I remember. Mm. So that's quite nice, really. And I always say to people now when they ask, which one should I read? Depending on the type of reader they are, you know, whether right. I think they're going to read lots. But mm. I generally say don't go for one of the big ones first. Mm. Go for one of the really good ones. But if you've heard of it, basically don't go for that one because save mm. that because they're, they're likely to be ones that you get more out of yeah. if you read it later once you know her style and her approach a little bit more. Do you have one in particular that you typically suggest? Yeah, I, I often suggest things like uh, Peril at End House, Murder mm-hmm. is Announced, uh, Mrs. McGinty's Dead, which I love. Um, I love Mrs. McGinty's Dead. Because that's really funny. And it's I think so funny. That, yeah, yeah, I think that really works with people. And it's an absolutely solid um, mystery, but without that big, you know, genre bending, twisting ending that you might get with her big classics. It's yeah. a solid ending that makes it you is. go, oh, yeah. but it's not, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's not rewriting the, the rules of mystery fiction. So those those are often the ones that I recommend. Yeah, Parallel End House, Murder is Announced, and um, Mrs. McGinty's Dead. Yeah. But I tend to get a sense to, to what they are interested in and sort of steer them in, in that direction a little That's bit. Maybe they might like thrillers more or or, right. or ones that superficially seem a little bit more cosy and nostalgic. Not that mm. they really are. But It's so nice that you had that connection with your mom as well, that she was kind of reading alongside you or, or knew what was going on and can kind of chat with you about it. Yeah, yeah. And we, we still do, you know, talk about things now. It's that weird thing that obviously I know a lot more about Agatha Christie now than she does because I research endlessly (laughs) always because there's so much to research and she wrote so much and there's so much about her with things like adaptations that you just don't stop and so it's been quite interesting (laughs) that sort of overtaking slightly of of I'm suddenly the one who recognizes things but you also remember and note different things don't you as as a reader yeah it's interesting that characters or books or, or whatever that are memorable or stand out to you for some reason may well be ones that other people they completely pass over and that they yeah. don't remember or they didn't particularly stand out as a favorite for them so different readers really do take different things from from different Agatha Christie books which is a huge part of her success I think completely and and we'll talk about this later but for me at Bertram's Hotel which is the book we're talking about today is one of those books where for me it's just always been one that I love and I go back to a lot but if I kind of bring it up in a group full of people who like Christie you know half of the people may not have even read it um, mm. it's just not kind of one of the most popular but um so you are an Agatha Christie historian as you were just saying you do talks you write books and you're a professor of screen histories at Solent University can you share a bit about what your work focuses on in particular with Christie and how you kind of came to that within your field so my first Agatha Christie book was Agatha Christie on screen. Um, and that came out of the fact that I'd actually done a little article and a talk about how some of the adaptations of her work link with questions of love and how love and sort of betrayal are on screen. So it was just a little bit of fun. It was quite interesting that people really found that much more um, interesting, I think, than pretty much anything else I'd written. It was the thing that people <laughs> were remembering and noticing. And as an academic, you, you really notice when people are, are, are talking to you about something you've written. So I thought, oh, that's interesting because mm. I love Agatha Christie, but I had deliberately not written about Agatha Christie up to that point because I love Agatha Christie. And there's, right. it, it, it can kill your love for something, right? The more you, totally. you make something into your work. Um, and I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I was really thinking I I just would love to do a history of Agatha Christie on screen because my background is that my undergraduate degree was English literature and film at the University of Southampton and I stayed there to do an MA in film and then my PhD was on the early days of British television so a real mixture of of history film and English Mm. so a pretty good match really for what I wanted to do (laughs) yeah the Um, apex really uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and so I thought, well, maybe I'll just do it. I'll bite the bullet and I'll go and I'll write this. Um, and I did. And it was a huge amount of work, much more than I thought it would be. Massively satisfying, though. Yay. I was so... The thing I couldn't get over was that there is so much information out there once you do some digging 
that is new. Like we still have so much to learn. And it's not just me doing digging for, for Agatha Christie stuff by any means. There's a good dozen, if not more, amazing Agatha Christie scholars and researchers who are who are looking into all sorts of parts of her life, career, mm-hmm. legacy. And so once I wrote that book, Agatha Christie on screen, I just found that I I found so much more material that I thought, well, I'm not done. I really don't feel I'm done. Yeah. And the Agatha Christie estate was so supportive um, and that they really found a lot of the stuff I was talking about quite interesting and helpful. And so I thought, well, Poirot is going to be 100 years old fairly soon at that point because 1920 or 1921 in the UK. And still a fully black mustache. It's amazing for 100. Yes, I know. I know. Well, he's going to keep going. I mean, there's no way that uh, Poirot will will outlive all of us. Absolutely. His mustache certainly will. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought, well, maybe I could do the same sort of thing, but about everything Poirot. Um, And I took it to HarperCollins. Uh, her publisher and amazingly they said yes as did Agatha Christie Limited which gave me access to lots of great stuff and that's it's just kept going from then really um and so I've just written the Marple book so Poirot I was really happy with and it did did well um and so I wrote a Marple book which is an, again a huge amount of work but very satisfying yeah. um and, and yes so so and there's still so much more it doesn't so stop much. I've still got I literally have a list on my phone of maybe a dozen topics related to Agatha Christie that are on my one day list. One of which oh was gosh. the Swinging Christie, but we'll come on to that. So. We will. Well, I won't ask you about the list now, but maybe after we've done the podcast, you'll share the list because that's <laughs> so, it's it's so true. There is so much to dive into. There are so many facets. And part of that is just the volume of work she produced allows for us to explore so much. There are so many patterns to look into. Um, and uh, And you've kind of started with that with your with your new podcast which is called the swinging christies about agatha christie in the 1960s it's so much fun it's so interesting it's so well researched um can you tell us a little bit about it and like what inspired the podcast so yeah so it's, it's i absolutely if i can say it again uh yes there is this thing about the the, the quantity of work that agatha christie did and that obviously opens a lots of avenues for discussing her from different angles but also it's the way that she um, sort of hints at or goes into aspects of society that are really different all the way through her career. You know, she doesn't just stay with sort of stock characters we see time and time again. She actually is really embracing and talking about lots of things about the world. And so that means that as well as there being a lot of material, there are lots of different ways to, to discuss that material. Yeah. And I'd always felt uh, that the 1960s was really under well underappreciated for sure but really sort of un- under discussed of the word like we're just not spoken about very much yeah. and it's actually commercially probably her most successful decade you know mm. her, her books were selling more each year than the previous sure. one I mean since then I'm sure it's all leveled out and we've still got you know and then there were none certainly right at the top but in terms of year by year they, she was she was doing really really well and things yeah. like her movies at MGM and stuff and I was starting to, to notice that when I was doing things like documentaries, um, and this isn't a, 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 a drive at any particular documentary at all, but yeah. they tend to want to talk about the 1920s, 1930s, and maybe the Second World War. And mm. then it sort of ends. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, in 1970, 60 died. And I was like, but there's this whole period right. where... She was writing until the moment she died. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think, I think... And maybe we'll talk about this with Bertrand's Hotel. I don't know if you agree with me, Rebecca, but I think a lot of people don't realise that she was writing contemporary fiction all the time. Yes. I think that they think she was always writing about the 1930s or something. Right. And, and you're like, no, Third Girl, for example, is absolutely a swinging absolutely. 60s text. Yes. Um, you know, the, the Mirror Cracked opens with discussions of new housing development. The development, housing, of course. Yeah. The development. The development, capital, capital D. D. Yeah. Yes, yeah. No, I, com- I completely agree with you. And I think that um, just because she has characters that may have had kind of their their youth in a particular period doesn't mean that the context of the book is kind of older. Um, yeah. She's very, very good at 
letting characters exist in a time that is maybe a little bit beyond them. I mean, Poirot is basically from his beginning a retired man, kind yeah. of having to deal with a world in which he is less and less relevant. Um, and I think a lot of the pattern that I see throughout her book is kind of the idea of waning relevance and how we deal with this as human beings in our own lives and, and kind of looking around at, uh, at the world that we live in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and again, there is this thing about, well, you, you're absolutely right that, that Poirot is always out of his time, really, yeah. even when we meet him in, in 1927, 1916. Yeah. Um, but the way that the characters speak to him change and, and reflects the way that society's changed. So there is this bit, you know, in the, you know, uh, where people start to say how old he is in the 1960s and, and sort of not in a way that, that perhaps is revered or, you know, given right. the respect that we might deserve, but almost like well, you, you're really out of your time here. And mm -hmm. Ariadne Oliver, you know, many of our favourites, uh, many of us, I'm sure, have her as one of our favourite characters. Mm -hmm. But she, you know, really sort of not quite understanding bits of society, but still engaging with it, still not wanting to be out of touch, but that doesn't mean that she understands it. And and, and I think that there is this thing that sometimes you can read these books and you can see that Agatha Christie is thinking, oh, um, I don't like this or this is an asset society I'm not very keen on. I don't like this type of, you know, uh, person in society or the way that society is mm -hmm. in this particular way. But she always acknowledges that this is something that happens as you get older, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's true of all of us. It's true of me. I'm in my early 40s and I have wonderful students. You know, I'm really pleased that. But they... The way that they live their lives sometimes, you know, the way that they're engaged with the, you know, their, their screens and, and sure. everything and the way that everything is, is uh, it's it's completely baffling to me in lots of ways. Right. That doesn't mean that they're wrong and I was right. I'm right. sure I'd be exactly the same. Um, yeah. you know, so, so it's interesting that she knows that that is something that as you get older, it's inevitably, I think, going to be the way that you, you consider about stuff. Um, that it doesn't seem quite right to you or slightly baffling to you. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you don't quite get it. And that's all yeah. right. That's okay. And Yeah, and I think um, she does such a great job of that throughout her books. But I think the 60s is so ripe for that in particular because it was a, a time of such social change that was very kind of in your face in a lot of ways. And it was much more widely broadcast across the world. And so I think um, the way she deals with it in her books in the 60s is a little bit more... Um, she takes the bull by the horns a little bit more with that. Um, how do you feel that her work in the 60s is kind of different from the rest of her work? So, yes, this is where I, I give huge credit to Gray Rob Brown, who's my co-host, co-producer. We both work on, on The Swinging Christies. Mm. Um, and he is brilliant at uncovering context and stuff. So, um, you know, we both do our obviously reading research around each topic. But he's particularly strong at finding stuff and saying, this is happening in society and we can sort of see this reflect here uh, mm -hmm. in, in what Agatha Christie is writing. Um, and so uh, whenever either of us are, are, are finding things like that, stuff that's changing, including stuff like, um, you know, the way that attitudes to sex is changing, such mm -hmm. as, you know, the, the pill, for example, things like the fear of, um, the nuclear bomb, uh, mm -hmm. spoken about really casually, by the way, in lots of the 1960s <laughs> sex almost. It's like it's, it's a bit of a joke. <laughs> um, I all got to worry about the bomb, um, you know, whilst you're doing your dishes or something. Mm -hmm. um, but but there's this thing that I think so much is changing quite quickly in the 1960s. Right. Correct. The pace of it is so different that I don't think you really get. Perhaps the war, you know, as Second World War, slowing things down a little bit around that period for wider society because its ramifications are so strong. And we see Correct. that in stuff yeah. like A Murder's Announced, which is very post-war, very much about Britain rebuilding itself and rethinking itself just after yeah. Second World War. But I think that's sort of a bit slow. But the 60s is suddenly happening really quickly. And I think that that is why it's quite interesting to see how she reflects that in in her 1960s books which she does in, in differing ways some much more so uh, than others i absolutely agree uh, we're going to talk about a miss marple book today which was published in 65 um and christy kind of took a a semi break from her from marple in the 30s and 40s in, instead she was focusing on poirot and and then she picks back up with marple in, in the 50s to a degree but more so in the late 50s and 60s um, what do you think it is about Miss Marple that kind of reinterested Christie at that time? 
Um, and other than the obvious, obviously, like Poirot was selling really well, so she was writing more Poirot <laughs> books. But like in terms of co- kind of coming back to Miss Marple and saying like this is a character I want to explore in this time period. Yes, I, 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 it's funny. It's something that I've um, had a conversation with John Curran about more than mm. once. Where, where, where we'd love to find that that sort of piece of paper or something that really <laughs> explains this this gap. Yeah, dear reader. But I think. Yeah, it's exactly. If anyone's found it, do let us know. But there is some. Um, I think it's quite straightforward, which is that, that Agatha Christie was always very keen to say, "I'm not Miss Marple. I'm much more like Ariadne Oliver." Um, uh, although not in all respects and, and, and various things. But actually, by the time we get to the 60s, she is starting to merge with Miss Marple a bit. Um, and there's a whole bit in Bertram's Hotel where Miss Marple's memories are actually Agatha Christie's memories. Mm. There's the a sort of whole thing about um, uh, driving to a matinee in a four-wheeler and coffee creams. And so I think there's stuff about army and navy stores and stuff. This, uh, this is in her autobiography as well as in at Bertram's Hotel. And I'm not the yeah. first person to point that out, by the way, you know, several biographers have. Mm-hmm. So there does seem to be a point where perhaps Miss Marple is a bit more of a comforting figure for her, that, yeah. that she's someone who she can slip into the mindset of a little bit more readily. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to um, obviously speak on her behalf, but it seems like there is there is more of a, an overlap, a link there, yeah. than there, there perhaps had been before. Because when she's first writing Miss Marple, she's... 37 years old right. um, yeah. uh, something like that so, so there's a massive difference between that and being in your 70s and writing Miss Marple so mm-hmm. um, there's it, bound to be a slight difference there I would also say that there's something about the fact that by the time we get to the 60s she's writing far fewer pure puzzle mysteries yeah which require a lot more work and a much more like Poirot for example mm-hmm. would yeah. solve generally more positive whereas Miss Marple is driven much more by instinct and so again we may discuss this in a minute about Bertram's but Mm. certainly instinct is an important way that she solves lots of her crimes Um, and so perhaps as she was writing more novels like that Miss Marple tended to be a better fit by someone who instinctively understood how characters might operate in relation to each other and and so on. Mm. I, I think that's absolutely right. I also think it's a bit of a call to relevance of, you know, we're, I kind of empathize or understand this woman. And a lot of Miss Marple's power is in her ability to be invisible. Mm. And as you become an older woman, you start to feel invisible. And I think Agatha Christie was not only empathizing with that, but saying like, but look what we can still do. Yes, absolutely. And I think that there's also this thing, though, about Miss Marple wanting her independence to still mm-hmm. be respected. I love mm-hmm. one of my favourite recurring things in Bertram's is that she wants to be able to get the bus. Yes. <laughs> she doesn't want a taxi called for her. Thank you very much. Right. And so this idea of actually, yes, respect is lovely, but also respect includes actually listening to and honouring what an older lady might want and not thinking for her. Um, which is something, if you've gone through as much Agatha Christie correspondence as I have, she certainly doesn't want people thinking for her. So, uh, you know, if someone's writing a blurb or putting together a, um, a cover design and haven't spoken to her before, you've got a pretty good chance that she's going to say no to it. <laughs> it's much better that you speak to her first. And quite right, too. Best-selling yeah. novelist in the world. Why wouldn't you? She knows what she's doing. Correct. I think this is a great moment to segue into our novel, which is at Bertram's Hotel. We've said it a few times. I'm just going to do a little brief historical note here, and then we're going to dive into the book. At Bertram's Hotel is a Miss Marple mystery published in the UK in 1965 and the US in 1966. It is the 10th novel in which Miss Marple appears, not including short stories or short story collections. And while at Bertram's Hotel is not considered one of her kind of essential or big works, it was generally well liked upon publication, particularly for its sharp cultural eye and the uh, creation of a hotel atmosphere. The hotel at the center of the story, Bertram's Hotel, is believed to be based on Fleming's Mayfair Hotel, although it has also been asserted that she based the descriptions on Brown's Hotel, known for being the first hotel in London, uh, where Christie often stayed. Now, both of these hotels, by the way, are still standing today if you want to have a very comfortable stay somewhere in Mayfair. And I will say that um, both hotels have on their website that they are the inspiration for Bertram's Hotel. (laughs) So, um, although uh, I will say Fleming's is a little bit more... um, says it could be us 
it could also be Browns. Browns takes all the credit for themselves. So <laughs> uh, that's that. Uh, you know, history is whatever you make of it, I suppose. Um, At Bertram's Hotel was adapted for BBC Film in 1987 with Joan Hickson as Miss Marple and Caroline Blackiston as Bess Sedgwick, in my opinion, the best take on such a fabulous character. And uh, it was also adapted for BBC Radio and for ITV with Geraldine McEwen in 2007. I am so excited to talk about this book with you. Um, Mark, please give us a one minute or so synopsis of At Bertram's Hotel. Sure. Well, uh, we join Miss Marple, who's just had her adventures in the Caribbean, and she's going to take another holiday now, uh, <laughs> courtesy of nephew Raymond, who uh, uh, initially is thinking maybe Bournemouth. Marple does not want to go to Bournemouth. She wants the bustling sights of London. Uh, and wants to stay at Bertram's Hotel, which um, both Raymond's wife aren't entirely sure might still exist, but it does, because it's such an old-fashioned establishment uh, that Miss Marple had very much enjoyed in her younger days. Uh, when Miss Marple goes to Bertram's hotel, she's delighted but a bit surprised to see that actually things don't seem to have changed that much in the intervening years. Um, and actually perhaps even starts to be a bit suspicious of the fact that it's a bit strange. This hotel seems to be so much stuck in its time. Um, we slowly sort of uh, discover that things indeed are not perhaps quite what they seem and that certainly some of the hotel guests seem to be caught up in some sort of criminal activity, which might be linked to a mail robbery, a mail train robbery, I should say. Um, maybe, very possibly. Um, but some of the most notable guests, uh, Canon Pennyfather, who I love, uh, who unfortunately is one of many Agatha Christie characters to be coshed on the head at some point, um, uh, because he returns unexpectedly one night. Uh, but there's also, yes, Beth Sedgwick, who's this sort of adventurer, um, just has done everything imaginable that is really exciting. Saving children from burning houses, I think, is one thing at one point. <laughs> um, uh, she's there, but so is her estranged daughter, Elvira or Elvira. Um, they both also competing for the attention of the same man who's an Italian racing car driver. So really exciting dynamic lives uh, <laughs> we're having there. And eventually there's a murder, um, uh, but it's not clear whether the, well, the victim was the intended target or not. That was perfect. Okay. <laughs> I was I was giggling along. I was nodding my head. I loved it. Um, it's not an easy book to to, to, to synopsize because it's not. Once it's one of those things that once you get to the end and you peel away the bits that are important, you know, important yeah. and less important. It's it's a bit of a giveaway actually what's going on once you realise where it's going. But yeah. it's atmosphere. You know, it's not it's not a puzzle mystery. It's about no. this this wonderful atmosphere and the characters. Honestly, and the murder comes so late, and you kind of go like, eh. <laughs> like I, yeah, I don't even like, need. Oh, there will be a murder. That's like, it's 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 a yeah. It's it's really not that important. The murder. I mean, to, to to your enjoyment of the book, I don't think the murder is that significant. Really, either you like it or you don't. I don't think the murder will make much difference either way. I completely agree. It could have totally focused on the use of the hotel and the kind of robberies going on in that interaction, and it would have been totally fine um, without that murder. So. I personally am a huge fan of this book. I squealed when you chose it because I was just desperate for someone to eventually choose this book. <laughs> Everyone's like, I'll do Death on the Nile. I'm like, no, no more. Um, so I was very excited. Um, why did you choose this book? So I knew it had to be a 60s Marvel book sure. uh, because I'm doing, <laughs> you know, with Grey, the Swinging Christie's and mm -hmm. the Marvel. And so I've been so immersed this sort of, yeah, you say that the overlap between those is so strong. And I, this is, of all the books from the 60s, and maybe of all the Miss Marple books, the one that has gone up the most in my estimation when I reread them for both, reread it for both projects. Um, because I, I don't think it's a, one of her masterpieces. I, you know, I, I, it's not that I think that it is a flawless, amazing book. No. But it's a book that I get huge amounts of pleasure from. And the more that I read it, the more pleasure I take from it. It is beautifully written yes, the it is. opening is phenomenal oh. this this absolutely I've, I've got it here i don't know if you mind if i please read out the very so the opening is let me just close my eyes hold on Go ahead. <laughs> yeah well yes you need to because it's so evocative so um in the heart of the west end there are many quiet pockets unknown to almost all but taxi drivers who traverse them with expert knowledge and arrive triumphantly thereby at Park Lane, Berkeley Square or South Audley Street. 
If you turn off on an unpretentious street from the park and turn left and right once or twice, you will find yourself in a quiet street with Bertram's Hotel on the right-hand side. Bertram's Hotel has been there a long time. During the war, houses were demolished on the right of it and a little farther down on the left of it, but Bertram's itself remained unscathed. I mean, that's just amazing already. I mean, she goes on and on about yeah. how it hasn't changed. But we know that, that she's telling us, she's literally guiding us yeah. with, as you say, close your eyes. A bit difficult if you're reading it. If you're having an <laughs> audio book, uh, close your eyes. And you, you, you're guided there. You know exactly what she's talking about. And this goes yeah. on for, for ages. And, and she talks about inside, if this was the first time you visited Bertram's, it feels like a vanished world. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm tempted just to stop here. Maybe we'll just read the book real quick. <laughs> uh, Can we just go back and read? Just, yes, yes. I know. And and I just, you're so right. That beginning is so beautiful. It's almost J.M. Barry and it's kind of like whimsicality, nostalgia. There's a fairy tale mm. quality to it. Um, and, and the way she talks about... The, the feeling of nostalgia mm. and kind of that where it kind of meets up against reality mm-hmm. um, is so profound and and really feels like Christy coming through um, coming through Marple, which is not something I always feel. I don't you know, I, you've talked about this in your podcast, kind of people putting words in Christy's mouth. But I do think that beginning, it feels like she's talking about what time what the passage of time feels like. Absolutely. And I think what what I find really interesting about it is that not just of Bertram's, and I'm not going to spoil other books from this decade, mm-hmm. but, but as a general point, mm-hmm. you may f- expect that somebody who is discussing nostalgia is therefore saying, oh, so old is good and new is bad. Correct. Yeah. We get a really interesting selection of uh, villains in the mm-hmm. 60s, some of whom are very much of the old traditional school. You know, we have middle-aged and older women as, you know, as villains, just as yeah. much as we have young men who seem to be, you know, uh, very into their fashion. There's a real, real mix there. And we've got mm-hmm. stories like, um, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler to say that in Halloween party, yeah. the teenage boys are actually people who help to sort of solve the crime and, yeah. and save the day at the end yeah. of it. Um and and so there's a real thing there about yes, nostalgia is great, and and, and there's absolutely no problem through Agatha Christie that she's clearly enjoying remembering the past when she was so happy and so much happiness there as well. But that isn't the same as her her saying, "Oh, we should go back to that." Right. That that that, that everything since then has been bad. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's it's nostalgia placed in exactly the right position if you ask me Mm -hmm. which is a lovely little window into another world but you can't ever go back there and you should never want to go back there because it's just impossible that's not how the world works yeah and if someone's trying to take you back there be suspicious Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, yeah. Always be suspicious of Agatha Christie's world oh, anyway. Course. I mean, Miss <laughs> Marple is the most suspicious person, which I think Inspect- Chief Inspector Davy says at some point. He's like, you don't <laughs> think people are very good, do you? Um, let's talk a little bit about Bess Sedgwick, because I just think mm. she's one of the all-time great kind of one-off Christie female characters. Um, I put her in line kind of like Lydia Lee is another favorite character for me, uh, Marina Gregg handful of others. Tell me how you feel about her as a character and kind of what she brings to this story, particularly in the context of her being like a woman, a modern woman of the 1960s. Yes, I think it's really interesting that when I read Bertram's Hotel, and actually even when I reread it, I, I always sort of slightly expect there to be a little bit of a more traditional, I guess, uh, discussion of or, 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 or development of her character. Because with this thing of her being estranged from her daughter, mm-hmm. I remember that the first time I read it, we're allowed to say spoilers here? You absolutely are allowed to. Yes, we'll just okay. note, we'll so just note that of, there's a spoiler. <laughs> there is definitely a spoiler, yeah. which is that when I read it, and even when I've read it since, I, I, I sort of am always expecting to learn that they're in, in league with each other, right? I always expect it to be yeah. that actually they've been really close for a long time and it's all been set up between them yeah. and that it was all just, because we've seen this in, and I won't spoil other books, but definitely other books where you think people either don't get along or they haven't spoken for a long time mm-hmm. and then you discover that actually they've, they've been in it together and that yeah. they, they're the villains yeah. i always am expecting that to happen but actually <laughs> no Beth just isn't really that bothered about her daughter and yeah. as we find out towards then of course there are things that she will do for her daughter yeah. but not the traditional maternal stuff no 
she's never going to go back to that. She's not that sort of a mother. Um, And I think that is so fascinating that she's not a maternal figure, but she is still protective. And, And this whole thing about part of her being protective is her basically saying, you don't want me hanging around as your mother. Yeah. That actually it's much better for other people to look after you. And that is hell of a thing yeah. um, to, to, to sort of, um, uh, for that to be the way that you basically communicate with yeah. your daughters to say, you're better off without me, yeah. don't worry. And to really, really mean it. And yeah. I think she, she's probably right. Um, yeah. But that's that's not what you expect from this character. So I find that that really fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, how about you though, Rebecca? When, why did you find her so fascinating? Was it is it that, that she's so adventurous? Is that what you loved about her? Well, I mean, we don't really get to see that much of her adventures, to be honest. We hear no, about them, no. but I think it's the joy joy for life that she has. I mean, that that first scene where we see her and she's eating a jelly donut and the jelly is dripping down her chin. It's it's an iconic moment, right? And she's laughing this big laugh, and there's just something so. I think she's the kind of woman you would expect Miss Marple to have a lot of judgments about. Mm. And and yet she is completely un- non-judgmental about kind of the lifestyle she leads and and the way she has dealt with her daughter and and in fact later on towards the end she says, you know, I thought I was too dangerous for my daughter, maybe I played it wrong. Maybe that was the wrong thing to do. Um so she she has this capacity for regret and for reflection. But she doesn't kind of take back anything she's done. She's just completely authentically herself in a completely modern way. She takes lovers, young men as lovers. She's still in love with her, you know, her husband who's died and has kept his name. And she's got – she's adventurous, but she's also got a lot of um, vulnerability in her. Yeah. And I think that vulnerability that she kind of shares openly in in almost a brazen way – um, is kind of what makes her so interesting. Um, she's not harsh. She's just different than everybody yeah, else. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that we're both really saying that she's real, right? Yeah. That, that she's got a complex character like a real person is, that mm-hmm. people can be bad, with you know, air quotes, in, in some ways, and good in others. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's absolutely true of Beth, that there's, there's things that she would, you know, she will save children from a burning building, um, <laughs> but she'll also happily be a bit of a criminal mastermind mm-hmm. and she'll, um, you know, um, <laughs> shimmy up a drain pipe to escape the police if, if that's what's needed. <laughs> and and I, part of me wondered in kind of that last scene um, whether Christy felt an affinity with her as well, because she says, I turned my mind to crime. I thought it was so interesting. And Chris, that's what Christy does. I mean, she's turned her True. mind to crime. Um, she is not yeah. carrying out the crimes. She's writing them down. But, you know, there's there's a, a little bit, I think, of of Christy saying, like, the exploration of crime is actually kind of an interesting and intellectual pursuit. Um, and I'm doing it, too. Yeah. Yes, she does. And she, she as Christy mentioned in a few interviews like that, one of her early ones just before <laughs> she went on her grand tour um, in, in 1922, um, she, she gave an interview that where she said crime is like drugs, um, you know, once you start it. (laughs) Um, uh, Because she she just was, yeah, finding that it's something that, that, yeah, she was was returning to Mm -hmm. um, time and time again. And in fact, you think about her being an adventurer like Beth Cedric, famously surfing and seeing the world. And even later on in her life, obviously getting the Orient Express by herself mm-hmm. and uh, traveling and doing whatever she wanted to do. Yeah. She she was a strong, independent woman yeah. who absolutely did what she wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so I think there are some some neat parallels there, yeah. yeah. Who also had a complex relationship to motherhood, I think. Yeah, um, definitely, yes, yeah, in both ways, both as a daughter and as a mother. Exactly. I and I think um, Elvira is also an interesting character to me because even though she's the younger there is something much less modern about her um, than than her mother, which I think is an interesting twist as well um, within kind of the generational divide of the book. Yes, I think that's true. Um, I, but I think that's also a bit of um, the traditional thing of the child rejecting mm. the, their parents' approach, whichever way it may be. Mm, right. <laughs> so uh, if you've got an outlandish you know, uh, parent in some ways, then you might reject that 
and be different in 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 another way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that there's something really interesting about the fact that these are characters that exist independently, both of our own best, but but we learn so much about them because of the way that they interact or don't interact, yeah. I guess, uh, or the, their sort of relationship between each other mm. is such a big indication as to the type of people that they are. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think, truthfully, whether you find that interesting or not is a really big indication as to whether a Bertrand's Hotel is for you. That's so um, true. And I can That's absolutely so <laughs> understand why people would say, why do I care about Bertrand's Hotel? The murder's not for ages. The crime is sort of quite vague for quite a long time. I know. A cannon gets knocked over the head. Um, Poor uh, Cannon Pennyfather, the best name in the business. <laughs> oh, amazing. And and I, I, I think the characters are so strong generally yeah. in Burton's Hotel. Some of my favourite characters, we only see sort of once. I love the... Sorry, I'm getting onto another topic Please now. Please go, it, go. But the, the thing about it. that, it, either you love the characters or mm. you don't, you know, if you're into the characters but there's the doctor who tends yes. to Canon Penny Father yes who's been who doing abortions no longer yeah. Been, yeah he's been struck off um for, and, and he's sort of really grumpy and but he's there and he's just fully rounded character mm-hmm. and you think there's no reason for Agatha Christie to make him this fully rounded character mm-hmm. than, in terms of the novel the plotting right yeah. there's no reason for that but she's absolutely come up with this person who I could picture right now I know exactly what he looks like I know exactly how he speaks he's so so well expressed Mm -hmm. um and not really that important to the plot but but the texture that that we get from that Mm -hmm. and there's also the jeweler or the the pawnbroker or you know that that, that, I and I was reading that section going again there is a way that you could just who cares this character isn't really that significant to the storyline and yet we get sort of inner thoughts, we get a little bit of an understanding as to why that he's reacting right. to, to um, Elvira in particular, yeah. but also generally day to day. Really nice little bits of character insight that don't advance the plot, but make it such a pleasure to read. Correct. So again, if that's the sort of thing that people love from their Agatha Christie, then, then Bertram's is, is a great choice. Yeah. But if you want lots of clues and a puzzle to solve, then I can understand mm. that Bertram's is, is not going to be top of your list of, of Agatha Christie favourites. No, I think that's completely right. It is, it's very character-driven. It's very atmospheric. Um, and in mm. fact, a lot of the characters are kind of just atmosphere um, in a way. Mrs. or Miss Gorringe, I think is how you pronounce it, is just like this wonderful set piece of a receptionist. Mm. Um, the same with uh, Henry, the, the kind of butler man who's serving everyone and and brings like endless muffins it would seem to people Um, so I I think you're completely right and it's why it appeals to me for me this is when people talk about a comfort book that is what this is for me I just feel like I'm about to sit in one of those huge chairs in the lobby at Bertram's Hotel that's what this book feels like to me you know, yeah. um, fully ensconced yeah. in kind of the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and, and to that end, I also think Chief Inspector Davy is a really interesting character. And I wonder whether you think that maybe he was meant to be a repeat character because she, she takes a lot of time developing him. Yes, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know because um, I think that for me, that's a bit of an indication of the fact that Characters generally are really important yeah. in this book, and that actually she did say at other points that that you can have detectives pretty much dropped in, as in sort of the police detectives yeah. dropped in and and just swap their names around, and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but here we want to get a little bit more of depth, and we do get a bit of that in some of our other sixties books. Yeah. Mirror Cracked has mm-hmm. got stuff yep. as well, um, but I don't know. Uh, I don't, I don't know how much we can um, think that she was actually thinking to bring them back, but yeah. that just that the characterization is going to be really um, important. That yeah. Just didn't want, you know, I can imagine that she just didn't want someone who could be any any old police, you know, policeman. Yeah. She wanted somebody who had a bit more depth to them. Yeah. And that, that really works here. It does. And just the element with Chief Inspector Davy also of kind of underestimation, uh, which, you know, is present for Mar- throughout, you know, Marple's books, but also in the context of Bertram's Hotel as well, like nothing is quite as what it appears to be. And Chief Inspector Davy is the same. He kind of comes in pretending to be a rube. Um, and that's his whole vibe is like, I'm a, I'm a big dum-dum until eventually he pins, you know, pins down what's going on. So I think um, that's kind of a, a runner throughout this book as well. 
Yes, and I love it when Agatha Christie really embraces a particular theme. Mm-hmm. You know that there is something that in her her book that there are books where there are multiple as, um, discussions of one particular aspect, and this whole thing, yeah, mm-hmm. about things initially seeming to be one thing but actually being something else. Right. We can. It is obviously hugely important to to, to book to tell, but I I always also think that you get much more out of that the second or even third time that you read the book that mm-hmm. it's, it's always funny to me to hear anybody saying oh why would you reread an Agatha Christie when you know <laughs> you've done it right. and I'm sort of like well it's, I, I'm not saying it's the least interesting thing in her books because it's absolutely not but if you think that that's the whole reason just go and buy a crossword you know right. It's, right. It's like, if you just want to know the solution to something yeah the journey is just as much fun and she understood that yeah um and 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 John Curran has seen through his analysis of her notebooks and amazing work by John, by the way, because yeah. it, I've gone through those notebooks and the way he's They're made amazing, sense of them yeah. is a phenomenal piece of work it because is. they are not easy to navigate. <laughs> um, but he's pointed out that that she didn't always start with the ending anyway and often yeah. didn't and often changed her mind about who might have done it in, in lots of her books because that wasn't always the most important thing. It was no. the story, the journey. Those Those tend to be the things that, I think really drove her more than anything else, perhaps. Absolutely. I mean, there are books of hers that I love where I I feel like the person who did it is a bit of a, like a womp womp, you know. (laughs) I feel that way about like for like for example, an appointment with death, for me, is a total womp womp ending. But I love that book. I reread it a lot. It's I think yeah. Yeah, so I just say that I think that the maybe the most famous one is is Murder in Mesopotamia. Yeah. Where um. Either you're on board with that ending or you're not. Mm. I am absolutely not. You're not? Okay, (laughs) why? No, because it it requires a leap of um, belief that that (laughs) characters would act in a way Mm -hmm. that really is so phenomenally... I'm not going to say stupid, that's unfair, but, but uh, let's just say that they're um, uh, not paying attention to right. the no, fundamentals the, yeah, the, of their life. Right. The idea um, that you could, like, would it, forget the person you married is, like, so crazy. That's, it. that's what I was saying. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to spoil it, but yeah, that's it. Um, yeah. And so for me, that is a really rare occasion where I'm like, okay. oh, now it really doesn't work for me. Okay. But if you sort of gave that to me, if it was like Agatha Christie's unfinished manuscript, and right. you scrubbed out those last three chapters what an amazing book that is <laughs> right. uh, because it's you know the, the, the amy leatheran um yes. writing it really great oh, voice great really voice. evocative stuff mm-hmm. um so yeah maybe that's how i'll read it next time maybe i'll just stop before the end yeah why not <laughs> once once we more. know the end we can just kind of enjoy the ride of it and um you know the reveal is is what it is and you can kind of enjoy poirot's um like big pointing moment and let it go yeah, with that that's true yeah. Um, so for me, at Bertram's Hotel is a really great setting for Miss Marple, um, like just as herself. And, and it also has kind of a subversive undertone to it. Um, let's talk a little bit about the setting and kind of how the book plays with that. For example, the idea of like a place of comfort actually being this den of iniquity. Um, do you think that that is kind of speaks to something she was maybe exploring in terms of what was going on socially at the time? Yeah, I think it's definitely this thing about not taking things at face value. Yeah. I think uh, the fact that it happens to be Bertram's Hotel here mm-hmm. is, um, I'm not going to say irrelevant, but but it, like it almost you could transplant that to a lot of places. Like we've just seen with a Caribbean mystery mm-hmm. that superficially um, characters who might superficially be the most welcoming mm-hmm. or be the ones who are doing the best for our lead characters are not necessarily those that are to be trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But that's always been the case. Yeah. That you, And how often is the doctor, um, you know, in a story ends up being the villain? Um, it, because it's often people who you might trust superficially or you might think, oh, well, um, why would they or how could they? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that, that's because they're human. And yeah. with Birchard's Hotel, it's the same sort of principle, but I guess transferred to a building, which is, well, this is a nice old building and Miss Marple's been here before. Mm-hmm. Just like you might have a character who meets an old friend. You know, I'm always suspicious on a, in a murder mystery, not so much Agatha Christie, but when someone's old friend pops up in episode <laughs> 12 or something for an episode, yeah. I'm always like, oh, they're going to have done it. And invariably they have. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> because this is such a good thing, right? That superficially you think this place or this person yeah. are one thing. Yeah. 
and it really pulls the rug out of you to say, uh, out from under you to say, oh, well, actually, Bertram's, Bertram's is playing a part here, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a character just as much as any of the humans, yeah. but it's making you think it's one thing, but actually it's very much yeah. something else. And and it's even multiple things at the same time. I mean, I thought it was so interesting, but also funny the way she described the rooms the Americans get versus the ones the British get um, and the way that they're given yeah. different breakfasts and they're given different <laughs> um, they're given different amenities. And, um, yeah. you know, it's I think that's kind of her starting to to dive into what what are when people come to the UK, what are they expecting? Uh, what what do we present yeah. ourselves at versus what are we actually? Um, and so that's, I think, another um, kind of thing that she brushes up against with this book that I found really profound. And she do- does it in such a subtle way that it's it doesn't feel forced on your throat. But I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's a great point. And, and it's, it's almost a natural extension of this post-war Britain having a great big wobble, wondering where are we in the world Mm -hmm. now? Um, And Bertram's and and lots of other things, including stuff for tourists, which you still see now in Mm -hmm. London. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say that I do something to go through London and you think that's for the Americans. (laughs) Um, Just as, you know, you you, you might get for any country in the world. Of course, you've got lots of people coming from another country. You can have people... Uh, you know things set up for, for that dare i even say the mousetrap is probably kept going through tourism mm. much more than through anything else I'm because sure it's true. a british institution right maybe the mousetrap is the modern day bertram <laughs> oh my god <laughs> because it's, it's this this idea that yeah. you're conjuring up this view of britain that people really like to indulge in but mm-hmm. that hasn't been around for quite a long time and perhaps never had it's it's, mm. it's a really interesting thing and I, I don't have the book to hand but I know that Julius Green in his book about Agatha Christie plays talks about the thing and I hadn't really thought about it before that but that with the mousetrap at some point you have to decide whether you're making it period or not mm, right yes. because it starts yeah. being set obviously in the 1950s yeah but what happens in about 1970 like are, because in like 1955, you're presumably setting it in 1955 because right. it's only been running a few years. Mm-hmm. But then by the time you get a few years after that, you have to decide, is actually this being set in the modern day still mm-hmm. as time rumbles on or are you setting it in the past? And yeah. it's the same sort of thing with Bertrand's here. The Bertrand's is absolutely saying, oh, people want the past, whether it's a real past or not. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to pay for it, we're going to give it to them. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and, and in that way, Christie and Shakespeare's plays have that mm. in common. You know, it's like you have to choose. Do you take the conceptual elements of the play or do you take the setting of the play? And um, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I once saw uh, Julius Caesar underwater. So I can say sometimes the setting. Were you underwater? <laughs> I was not underwater. They did the play as though they were underwater and like swam everywhere. Uh. Um, it was one of the craziest. That was really tiring. I thought you'd be one hell of a swimmer. You would need to be. I, it was one of the craziest. But they also, I mean, they, I spoke to someone after who'd been in the play, and they said it was one of the ways of taking away the element of time because underwater we didn't have to discuss what time we were in. It was like, oh my god, that's, oh, that's quite crazy. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but I think just, I mean, that's an aside, but. That that's so interesting, and I think that's totally right about the mousetrap and and any of her plays because um, th- there are just truisms that you can take throughout any time period th- and make it work, just depending mm. on how you how you set it. Really, um, so the ending of this book is like fairly abrupt, and mm. one of the rare Christies where the killer is not brought to justice. Do you mm. wish we had gotten to see Chief Inspector Davy pursue Elvira, um, or do you kind of like where it ends? No, I don't know that I would want to see the, the pursuit. What mm-hmm. I would have liked to have seen was a bit of evidence, <laughs> or either something that, that that would really put the seal on it. Yeah. And um, certainly the Joan Hickson adaptation, it's, it's a real cliche, but they, they find the diary, I seem to remember, where right, lots right. of the stuff is revealed, which is, you know, that's not a brilliant ending. But you do, I think, need a little bit of something. But mm-hmm. I've got to say, because of the type of book it is, I'm not sure you particularly notice because mm. it's about getting the sense of it there. Um, but it's, it's interesting that this ending, when Good Housekeeping in America picked it up for serialization, this was the, the, the a request 
um, for them was, was for that to be changed to make um, Elvira more sympathetic oh, and have a sense that she might be rehabilitated in some way. Hmm. Um, that was that was a really big that was a big request of theirs, and um, I can understand because it is quite an abrupt ending. Like you, it does feel like there is something else that perhaps is missing from it. It doesn't bother me hugely, mm-hmm. but I think that if I were the editor at the time, I might have asked for something to to, to, to clarify the evidence or to perhaps um, seal our, our our characters a little bit more. But I'm perfectly happy with it. Did, did you? I mean. I don't know how much it bothered you, Rebecca. Do you think that, it, what was your thoughts about that? Um, it, I couldn't say it bothers me, but it, it brought to mind like the end of the murder on the Orient Express, where there's just kind of this mm. like slamming of the fist on the table kind of. And, mm. um, and I, you know, I, I like a little wrap up. What can I say? Like, I wouldn't have minded a chapter later with Chief Inspector Davey visiting Miss Marple in St. Mary Mead and telling her the story of how he caught Alvera, you know? That's nice. Yes. No, I agree. That would have been lovely. That's great. Shall we just write it real quick? Yeah. Do you want to do that? Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll we'll, we'll put an hour to one side. (laughs) And I can, you know, I can just imagine like Cherry Baker would be vacuuming and he's trying to tell the story and he can't hear because, you know, I can just see it all happening and and him trying to kind of fit into her sitting room, which is very small. And he's this big man. And I just, I can just see it happening. And I, I would have loved that scene. Yeah, that's great. Oh, that's really good. Oh, I love that. Because um, actually, you. this is one that she didn't make a lot of changes to. Mm. She, it, it was, it didn't go through a lot of, of changes. There were some. I mean, the mirror cracked. She had to rework quite a lot mm-hmm. because everybody worked out the solution, um, <laughs> which really affected its serialization chances. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like Nemesis, I was going through not long ago, mm-hmm. and that has got huge amounts of added material after yeah. it had been typed up that she hand wrote and stuff like that mm-hmm. so she was making changes when she felt they were necessary sure. but clearly for Bertram's she didn't yeah she was clearly happy with with, with it um and yeah quite right too if you ask me I agree and and it just goes to show the book as you've said previously is not about the puzzle it's not about the murder it's really about the atmosphere and about the characters and um I think on those fronts we can be totally satisfied with it yeah yeah, I think so. I, I I think that it it works as a novel. And sometimes you've got to read them as just a novel, yes, and not an Agatha Christie. Correct. Um, and I think that that you, if you take your expectations of what you think is going to be in in an Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. you may well get a lot more out of this book, but also perhaps have even more respect for Agatha Christie once you finish, when you realise the type of thing that, that she was writing, as well as her amazing puzzles. I agree. Um, this has been so much fun, Mark. Thank you so so much for being here. I hope you've had a good time as well talking about. Oh, it's been wonderful. Hotel. Thank you. Oh, good. Um, would you like to be found by the people? And if so, where can they find you on on any platform? Oh yes, yes, please, yes, do find me. Um, <laughs> my personal accounts on uh, X and Instagram are at Dr. Mark Aldridge, but you can also find the Swinging Christies at Christie underscore Time mm-hmm. on both of those as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah. That's where you can find me. Absolutely. And we'll we'll have uh, links to those as well as the links to your books in uh, in the episode notes. So everybody go and check those out. And thank you so much again for being here, Mark. And um, I really appreciate it. This was just the most fun I've had it in a very, since getting pneumonia. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you. <laughs> and I hope you feel better as well with your cold. Yeah. Thank you. And you. Uh, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But thank you so much. And um, let's stay in touch and have a lovely night. podcast is produced by Kate Crishall with sound engineering by Winter Robinson. This was the final episode of season two, and we are so grateful that you're here listening with us. We have a mini episode coming up in between seasons, and then we'll be back in May. Stay up to date on our Instagram at T and Murder. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.